0: CHAPTER ONE OF THE PSYCHOLOGY OF RELIGION BY EDWIN DILLER STARBUCK. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. INTRODUCTION Science has conquered one field after another. Until now it is entering the most complex, the most inaccessible, and, of all, the most sacred domain, that of religion. The psychology of religion has for its work to carry the well-established methods of science into the analysis and organization of the facts of the religious consciousness and to ascertain the laws which determine its growth and character. It will be a source of delight to many persons, and of regret to others, that the attempt is at last made to study the facts of religion by scientific methods. Those who believe that law reigns, not only in the physical world, but in the mental and spiritual, in other words, that we live in a lawful universe, and who believe, furthermore, that we are helped in becoming lawful creatures by comprehending the order that reigns, will hail this new development with gladness. Those, on the other hand, who hold conceptions which separate sharply the spiritual realm from the mundane, who acknowledge law and the consequent validity of science in the one, but set the other under the control of voluntary and arbitrary decrees, will look on a scientific study of religion with distrust and suspicion. In fact, during the years that these studies in psychology of religion have been in progress, the warning has often been given in good faith that we are entering upon a hopeless quest. The ways of God, it is said, are beyond human comprehension. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst thou tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth? So is everyone that is born of the Spirit, is the oft-repeated quotation, now it is not the purpose of this chapter to answer objections to the scientific study of religion, or to justify it, a thing which may safely be left to time, but to help the patient student of the pages which follow to reap what good they may contain by falling in line with their point of view. Let us understand each other in the beginning. We proceed on the assumption that this is a lawful universe, that there is no fraction of any part of it, which is not entirely determined and conditioned by orderly consequence, that the laws which determine every event, no matter how mysterious, are ascertainable and thinkable, provided we have time, patience, and wisdom enough to unravel them. The growth of science has been a growth of recognition of law. A little while ago, comets and meteors were the heralds of good or ill to man. Historical events were the consequence of juxtaposition, of planets or flights of birds. Sickness, misfortune, and death were visitations of divine displeasure, and science under such conditions was impossible. Now, in the physical world, caprice and chance have been eliminated. All things follow an irresistible sequence of cause and effect. When a new and strange fact of nature occurs, we are not satisfied to regard it as a stroke of magic or an arbitrary decree of providence. If a new reaction appears in the test tube, or we get evidence of the existence of x-rays, we ask immediately what new laws or nature are shown here. How do these new phenomena fit into the old? Law reigns everywhere. The meteorologist is even studying the wind, and with some degree of success is finding whence it comes and whither it goes nor do we limit our generalization to the facts of the physical world, but assume that in the mental life also there are laws as dominant and unchangeable, although these are of different character and are peculiar to their own sphere. It has been one of the greatest triumphs of modern times to bring under investigation by empirical methods the processes of human consciousness. The student in the psychological laboratory meets with as great orderliness and sequence among the facts of emotion or memory, or reasoning as the physicist in his laboratory. Even the various types of insanity are usually traceable to natural causes, and the recognizable as a result of exaggerated elements in the interplay of psychic forces, and not as manifestations of demonical possession as was once commonly believed. It is scarcely questioned at the present time that our mental processes follow an orderly sequence. We go one step further and affirm that there is no event in the spiritual life which does not occur in accordance with immutable laws the study of religion is today where astronomy and chemistry were four centuries ago the world has been taken away from the oracle alchemist astrologer and petty gods and given over to the control of law another four hundred years may restore to law the soul of man with all its hopes aspirations and yearnings we shall be able more easily to put ourselves in the point of view of the psychology of religion by considering, briefly, its relation to four other lines of human interest. 1. Relation to sociological and history There are two general lines of approach to an understanding of the growth of religion. We may study religion either in the race or in individuals. Our principal knowledge of its development up to the present has been through sociology and history, which give us glimpses of its beginnings and of the influences which have shaped its growth from the earliest times to the present the raw material for these researches is found in the institutions and customs of people typical instances of such studies are tyler's primitive culture and spencer's sociology especially should the article of dr daniels the new life a study of regeneration be mentioned in this connection as it deals from a sociological standpoint with the same topic which occupies part one of this volume. We may turn, however, to the study of the religious instinct in individuals, and discover there its roots and the law of consequence of its elements from childhood to maturity. This is the work of the psychology of religion. The problem is the same. Whether studied in the individual or the race, the data in the two fields and the methods of interpretation are different. We may find at some time the same principles of growth in both, discover as is often at present assumed that the individual passes through the same stages of religious development as the race or that the race is but a long-lived individual but that must be settled by scientific investigation and not by philosophical speculation two relation of psychology the psychology of religion and modern experimental psychology are closely related both in method and subject matter the method of both is inductive in point of time, one of them represents the next to the last step in the growth of empiricism, the other the last. In subjecting the facts of nature to scientific treatment, it was a long step in advance when, recently, it was recognized that every thought or volition or emotion, every expression of consciousness, is an index of some law of life, and that the best way to understand the mental life is to view each of its manifestations as a fact of nature, and to study such expressions objectively. So marked has been the swing away from the rational introspective standpoint that no serious modern psychological work exists which does not at least take into account laboratory experimentation. Still there has been one reserve which has not, until lately, been entered by the well-established methods of science, namely religion. It is an equally important step with that which marked the beginning of experimental psychology that now the whole range of human experience, including its most sacred realm, is thrown open to scientific investigation. We shall show in another connection that the psychology of religion employs the same methods as psychology proper, and shall make clear in the proper place that such means of approach are in the interest of the comprehension and assimilation of that which is the center and heart of life. These two departments of study are closely related, likewise in subject matter. There seems to be no reason longer to make a sharp distinction between those functionings of consciousness which may be termed religious, and those on the other hand which belong to the so-called mental life. Just as in the psychology proper the artificial walls have been shattered which separate intellectual, emotional, and volitional activities, and all the faculties and we have come to look upon each activity in the light of the whole consciousness. So we are discovering that the religious and secular aspects of the soul life constantly flow into each other, and that each helps in the interpretation of the other. We shall find that the data of religious experience are being illuminated at every point by the results of psychological psychology. The exact relation which we conceive to exist then between the psychology of religion and the psychology proper will depend on how inclusive the definition each becomes. If we should define religion broadly enough to include the whole of life, then the science of it becomes the whole of which psychology is a part. But if we consider psychology as the science which discusses the laws of all the psychic functionings, whatever, and include within them reverence, dependence, worship, and the like, then the psychology of religion is a special branch of psychology. In a volume like this, which concerns itself very little with the definitions, it makes little difference which branch of study swallows up the other. Only this should be clear, that the two spheres of investigation are not only clearly separable either in method or subject matter. Relation to the philosophy of religion and theology. The psychology and the philosophy of religion have identical problems, but in this they differ widely that they approach the problems in different ways. The philosophy of religion and theology insist on seeing things in wholes, they resort to introspection, intuition, rational analysis, and definition. The psychology of religion sees it in the scattered facts of religious experience. An evidence that spiritual forces are at work, it believes that by viewing these facts objectively and minutely, they will constantly reflect new truth, or new and larger aspects of the old. The one works at the finished end of knowledge, and is, to be sure, more artistic and self-contained. The other, active, energetic, grovels among details, but at the same time has larger faith, and hopes to come into the central life problems doubly enriched and illuminated. It is as if I wished to know more about a new and strange locality. I may sit at my tent door and reason out many things about it. I may infer many things truthfully in regard to the contour of the country, from the nature of the air currents, much about the nature of the soil and vegetation by watching what the stream carries past my door. Or I may set out and explore the locality, and gather information from a thousand sources, and let my knowledge grow as the facts fall into numberless combinations and mutually interpret each other. Now if my knowledge of the country is really to increase, both things are necessary, to gather the data and to interpret them. The facts in themselves are voiceless and helpless. Their value lies simply in what I bring to them of my own subjective life just as truly is my thought-life helpless unless it has the facts of experience to call it out and correct it. The business of psychology-religion is to bring together a systemized body of evidence which shall make it possible to comprehend new regions in the spiritual life of man, and to read old dogmas in larger and fresher terms. The condition in our present era is as if, in exploring the land, there were a division of labor— AND ONE GROUP OF MEN busied THEMSELVES ONLY IN GATHERING DATA, WHILE ANOTHER WAS CONCERNED ONLY WITH THE INTERPRETATION OF THEM, AND, AS IF ONE BAND, THE SCIENTISTS HAD ALMOST LOST ACQUAINTANCE WITH THEIR CO-WORKERS, THE PHILOSOPHERS. THE GAP BETWEEN THEM HAS BECOME SO GREAT THAT THE SCIENCE OFTEN WANDERS AIMLESSLY INTO NEW REGIONS, OR AMUSES ITSELF BY COUNTING GRAINS OF SAND AND PHILOSOPHY ON ITS PART, SITS AT EASE, AND WITHERS UNDER A SENSE OF FINALITY AND SUFFICIENCY. Such a divorce, which is a relatively modern one, may be likewise a necessary and permanent one. It may be unavoidable from the very nature of evolving consciousness that we must always turn to the objective aspect of experience and then from that to the subjective interpretation of it. In other words, science and metaphysics may always exist side by side, but it will be a happy consummation if we come generally to recognize that each exists for the other as surely as the theologian and philosopher become seized with a larger faith and push it out into new regions. And the psychologist remains alive to the infinite significance of his facts. We shall have no branch between the philosophy of religion and theology on the one hand, and the scientific study of religion on the other. 4. Relation to religion Religion is a life, a deep-rooted instinct. It exists and continues to express itself whether we study it or not, just as hunger and the desire for exercise still assert themselves whether or not one knows the condition underlying them. So will one's spiritual nature function and seek objects for its expression even if we are wholly ignorant intellectually of its nature. But it is in the interest of religion that it should not remain submerged in the sea of feeling that in some degree it should be lifted up within the range of intellectual comprehension. Here is this life of the physical organism. It will continue to function, feed, grow, and maintain its rights, whether or not we understand its mechanism. Still, we do not hesitate to say that its interests are better conserved if we comprehend the laws of its parts. The physician who goes through the body with scalpel and microscope does a service to the living human being who rejoices in his strength and pulsing life. Psychology is to religion what the science of medicine is to health, or what the study of botany is to the appreciation of plants. The relation is the same as that of any science to its corresponding art. It is art coming to comprehend itself for its own betterment. The development of psychology religion is another step in the growth of racial self-consciousness which seems to be nature's way of self-improvement. Let us ask what religion may hope to gain by a study of its nature and laws. In the first place, psychology will contribute to religion by leading toward greater wisdom in religious education. There are several in this country, several thousand ministers who professedly devout their lives to the spiritual culture of those in their charge. There are several million parents whose highest desire is to meet wisely the moral and religious needs of their children at every step in their growth. There can be no doubt that the larger share of wisdom in such matters will come from the doing as our fathers have done, combined with a fine intuition which feels its way into the life that is hungering for wisdom. But it is each person's business to seek to add a little to the wisdom of the past. This can be done only through a more adequate comprehension of life by reading into it until its processes become transparent. I do not trust a physician to prescribe food or exercise to my child, or to heal it, unless I fully trust his knowledge of its anatomy and physiology. During all those years when he is dissecting human bodies, or studying circulation, or nerve anatomy in the laboratory, he is storing up information and gaining such an insight as will safely bridge over some crisis in the life of his patient. The time is almost past when we entrust our children in school to a teacher who does not know something of psychology. It is a mere platitude to say that the skilled mechanic must know the laws of the stress of steel or the pressure of steam, that the electrician must understand the materials he is dealing with, that the teacher must share the knowledge of the psychologist as to the laws of the conscious life. It will become likewise a commonplace to say that a religious teacher cannot stand between a hungering soul and its future self, or between men and God, who does not know something of the laws of spiritual evolution, who does not know at every step something where the life is, whether it is tending and the means by which it is to attain its end, that the soul be no longer left to drift aimlessly and to select chance objects for its expression, or remain without an object, is partially to be the work of psychology of religion. Psychology will contribute to religion also by increasing our power of appreciation of spiritual things. Religion, in part, is, in the language of Professor Royce, concerned with the world of subjective apprehension or, as Dr. Parson puts it, it deals with values, but the world of appreciation is never open to him who has not found doors opening up into it. I may look upon flowers in a purely objective way but if i find some road leading into the life of the plant there is awakened subjective response to it to peter bell a primrose by the river's brim a yellow primrose was to him and it was nothing more but when peter bell brought an awakened consciousness to the primrose it opened up its life to him the botanist who knows most of the structure and growth of plants provided he does not become buried in his technique, is the one who gets the fullest inkling. In contemplating the flower of what God and man is, even if he loses himself for the time, he is turning out a body of knowledge which blazes a path by which those who follow may enter a larger world of appreciation. He has made a worthy sacrifice for the future. The painter who has seen farthest into the laws of color blending Massing and perspective is the one, other things being equal, whose feelings respond most warmly to a landscape, or who feels most intensely from within a great work of art. In the same way, religion must be entered. Most of it will always remain below the threshold of clear ideas in the sphere of feeling. But to lift it above superstition, to dwell vitally within it, to make it a sure, lasting, growing possession of mankind, it must have a thousand thought-paths leading into its holy of holies. The mystic, or ardent religionist, seeks to throw himself straight into the heart of truth. He can carry up into it, however, only such illumination as his mental life gives him power to apperceive. One would doubt that the experience of a child of four, say, who shut his eyes to the world and sank back into religious quietism, were rich in spiritual content. Science is willing to work and wait, even to turn its back on a larger outlook of truth, in order to find it more largely. The feeling comes to many as if there were a hemming, more and more closely, of the range of that which escapes the artificial formulation of science, that the message of the poet, and artist, and religionist is threatened with extinction. Where is there room for beauty or for God, in a world whose parts are all labeled, and all whose workings are understood? Such a feeling grows out of a mistaken notion of what science can do. Science really gives a final explanation of nothing whatever. All it can do is to bring a little coherency and constancy into the midst of that which is constantly flowing, to explore a little into the ever-enlarging region of the unknown. In applying the methods of science to the study of religion, most of it will always remain out of our grasp. We shall have to content ourselves by working around the outskirts, making an inroad here and there, feeling our way where clear paths fail, until we are able to say of the religious sense, as of every other field we try to explore, we understand it, because there are bits of it which satisfy the demands of our intelligence sufficiently to give the feeling of knowledge by producing steadfastness in our emotional attitudes. I say I understand the constitution of water. Because I know it is composed of hydrogen and oxygen in certain proportions, and because I know how it acts and how it is acted upon in its manifold relationships, but if I stop to question it, I know nothing of hydrogen and oxygen, nor of any one of the numerous properties of water, and in its ultimate analysis, the fact of the existence of water is as great a mystery as that a soul should be turned from death unto life." The end of our study is not to resolve the mystery of religion, but to bring enough of it into orderliness that its facts may appeal to our understanding. THE METHOD The question arises, in what way is it possible to produce order in a field of consciousness as complex and organic as that of religion? Is it possible to analyze and organize the data so that the results may have some degree of scientific exactness? and accordingly furnish some solid ground on which to build. The method will necessarily be determined by the problem in hand and the character of the data used. The present volume is an excursus into individual psychology and represents only one of several aspects of the psychology of religion now being pursued. It is a purely empirical study into the line of growth in religion in individuals and an inquiry into the causes and conditions which determine it. It begins with conversion, since that seems to show in a condensed form some of the essential features of religious development. Then follows a the discussion of the line of growth following conversion. Part two is a presentation of the line of growth, where not marked by apparently sudden changes of character. The material for the study consists largely of autobiographies written in response to a printed list of questions. The task before us is to take the varying records and find what are the common elements in them, to get a composite picture of them, to discover what are the largest aspects of religious evolution in masses of people, and to approach an insight into those laws of growth which, for the group studied, seem natural and normal. The difficulties in the way of rendering such studies of scientific value are numerous and very great. Most persons have little power of introspection. Memory of past events is imperfect. At best, the descriptions of subjective events are poor accounts of what has happened, or what now exists. The personal equation of the student is certain to enter into the results. The difficulties of analysis, where facts are so complex, confront one. In short, one has all the difficulties which have to be overcome in the exacter sciences. There are precisely the same obstacles, no fewer and no more numerous, than those in other sciences, but in a more exaggerated form. Any value the following pages may have is the result, in part, of perfecting a method after much loss of time for giving massed results and at the same time reducing the sources of error in the organization of the raw material. In order that the reader may the better grasp the meaning of the discussions which follow and also judge their scientific value, we shall. Consider briefly the various steps in the method pursued. 1. In the material for the study, the printed question lists so much in the use since the early work of Darwin and Galton were employed. The questions were framed so as to call out experiences of a certain general character, and at the same time to avoid as far as possible biasing the replies. So far did they meet that the condition that rarely were the answers written categorically in reply to the special list of questions. The idea that if the mind of the respondent were awakened along the desired line, what came forth spontaneously would be the most vital and essential elements of his experience. Care was also taken to call out actual facts of experience, and not opinions about certain ideas or doctrines, on the ground that the interpretation of actual experiences would bring us near the operation of life-forces, than a study of massed opinions, the attempt was made to have the material as representative as possible in regard to sex, age, church, connection, and vocation. Of course, the questions were unavoidably selective in certain ways. For example, those responded more readily who were more favorably disposed towards the study of religion, and those also who had now, or at some time had had, an actively religious experience in interpreting results we are constantly to take into account the limits within which the inductions are valid. They are true of a specialized class, chiefly Protestant, American members of professed Christian communities. They are not necessarily true for savages or statesmen or Catholics or persons living in a different historical epoch. We shall have constantly to correct our conclusions by studying separately more special classes in regard to church, vocation, etc., and to widen them by gathering data from new sources. It seemed best in mapping out a relatively unorganized field not to discriminate too closely the class of persons or nature of the experiences which were considered together. If we can get a few general bearings at first, it may guide us in future work. Since these studies were organized, the same methods have been carried out in several different directions. 2 the next step was the analysis of the records to be used many hours and sometimes several days were devoted to studying a single record for the purpose of seeing each part of it in all its possible bearings and in what seemed to be its true context in case of meanings too obscure or accounts too imperfect the respondent was plied with further questions the source of error from biased interpretations is at best very great and can be reduced only by other persons analyzing and interpreting the same or similar records. The purpose in this step was to arrive at the same insight into the growth of the religious life of each individual, as it were, to be used alone as a study in the psychology of religion. 3. But since the end in view is to find what principles in the growth of religion are true for people in general, it was necessary to devise a plan by which the like, the like, and unlike elements in the different records could be brought into relation. The means finally employed was to use enormous, specially ruled charts, which were folded into books for convenience in handling. The charts were ruled horizontally, and also into vertical columns, without any prepossessions, and without wanting to find any particular fact. The first case was scattered along horizontally through the chart. The second one was sewn along in the same way, but care was taken to bring similar facts under each other. As the cases multiplied, they began to form vertical columns of like or contradictory facts. The columns fell gradually into groups of columns, and new ones were constantly forming. Several times the whole thing had to be started afresh to approximate the new groupings. Something approaching a permanent form was reached but vacant columns were kept to catch new items. Each biography was thus rewritten, except in cases where condensations could be safely made. Apparently insignificant events were preserved in the individual cases. These sometimes fell away as being really valueless, but frequently they proved common to many persons, and full of significance. The picture was thus constantly shifting, by one column dividing into two, or two or three melting into one, old ones disappearing and new ones forming. In each study, there were finally about fifty vertical columns, each ready to s- supplement the others. The advantage of the charts lay in the fact that the individual cases were kept intact, and also that relations could readily be ascertained between the various columns. In many ways, the use of the charts was found to assist in lessening the personal equation. By their help it was possible to view the fact of experience more objectively, and thus to allow them to speak for themselves. In this way, too, opinions and presuppositions were reduced to a minimum. For After analysis and classification came generalization. What do the records show when viewed collectively? What are their common elements? What the conditions determining their divergence? What life forces do they reflect? The mass results can be shown, in part, by summarizing distinctive features and expressing them in percentages of all the cases, by comparisons of the columns, and by quotations. This step is like making a composite picture of several individual ones, or like getting a bird's-eye view of a landscape. Experiences vary. In the comparative study, we come to understand the causes and conditions underlying their variation, in many respects, they harmonize and reveal some of the larger tendencies in human development. The similarities and differences furnish larger insights into life than can come from individual experiences. Only by the study of many outcrops of rock is the geologist able to picture the strata beneath the surface. Human experiences are partial revelations of the infinite life. A collective view of the minute facts of personal life shows laws and processes and tendencies of growth and deepens by a little our comprehension of the religious consciousness Five. lastly the principles shown in the massed results were interpreted in their larger bearings there are two general lines of interpretation the first is that anticipated in the last paragraph which involves the explanation of one set of religious phenomena by another set in the same general group of data it is concerned with setting forth the interrelation of the facts within their own sphere. For example, can I explain the feelings which attend the critical moment of conversion as a direct consequence of those which precede or adolescent doubt as conditioned by certain aspects of childhood training? The second line of interpretation asks what the facts mean as viewed in the light of other sciences. What relation do they bear to the facts set forth in sociology, history, biology, or psychology? The inquiry then becomes... In regard to the feelings which attend conversion, have they a possible explanation in the facts of the physiology of circulation, or in the psychology of temperament, and in regard to adolescent doubt, I may raise the question as to its connection with primitive social customs or the biological events of attaining physical maturity. Such interpretations are largely an individual matter, and depend upon what the student brings to the facts in hand. For the sociologist or historian or pathologist, the same data will fill entirely different gaps in our knowledge. The interpretations in this volume are professedly chiefly on the psychophysiological side. Provided the personal equation has not been too great in organizing the religious experiences, the results will furnish material for other classes of students. To sum up our discussion, the psychology of religion is a purely inductive study into the phenomena of religion as shown in individual experience. It differs from the methods heretofore employed in viewing its facts more objectively. It is closely related to the experimental psychology and historical development, subject matter and method. The end in view is not to classify and define the phenomena of religion, but to see into the laws and processes at work in the spiritual life. The fundamental assumption is that religion is a real fact of human experience, and develops according to law. Although these laws are peculiar to their own sphere, and need not harmonize readily with those of physics, chemistry, and the like, nevertheless the facts have an order which, given wisdom enough, may be ascertained. The service of psychology to practical religion is to make possible a harvest of wiser means in moral and religious culture and also to lift religion sufficiently out of the domain of feeling to make it appeal to the understanding, so that it may become possible, progressively, to appreciate its truth and apperceive its essential elements. End of chapter 1